who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. The bell has rung. It's episode 230 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. It's back to school in pretty much everywhere in the country at this point, right? And the reason I even bring that up is because we are headed to class this week. Deadly Class is going to be premiering on Sci-Fi in 2019. I was in the press room at San Diego Comic-Con 2018, so I'm going to take you back to that. We'll talk to the cast. Rick Remender will be a part of it. Wes Craig, those behind the show. So you'll get the cast perspective and the creator's perspective from what I think is going to be a huge, huge hit when it premieres on Sci-Fi in 2019, we'll have some other schoolyard themed stuff going on this week. I normally don't like to do the whole theme thing, but it just sort of worked out this week. And it's going to start next what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer Justin Jordan, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. For the first time in the month of September, we're dragging out that long box, firing up the tablet and the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. So many good choices this week, but I wanted to move ahead to something not even going to be coming out until September the 26th, but I got a chance to get an advanced look at Stranger Things number one from Dark Horse Comics. Of course, Jody Hauser doing the writing there. Stefano Martino on the pencils. Keith Champagne on the inks. Lauren F. on the colors. And Nate Picas of Blambot on the letters. Now, yes, this does take you back to season one, and it follows the untold story of Will trying to survive in the upside down so we get to see just that world although to be honest and maybe some very very minor spoilers here and but if you've seen the show not really spoilers for you 
we get to do we do get to see a little bit of both worlds, but it's mostly what's going on with Will and the upside down. And the first issue is very much that. It is very much the beginning of when he first enters the upside down. And of course we backtrack a little to everything that happened just a little bit before that. Now, if you've seen the first two seasons of the show, you kind of already know about how the upside down works and can understand what's happening to Will in the beginning while he's in there. But you really kind of get an insight into what his mindset was when he first gets there and you get to find out literally what's going on inside of his head. And there are some funny moments there and it is the very beginning. And I think part of it is knowing what's coming and where the story is going to go already is one of the things that was always in the back of my head when I was reading this. Now, there's nothing particularly groundbreaking in this first issue, but at the same time, if you're a true Stranger Things fan, it really just feels like connecting with an old friend from a season that made us fall in love with the show in the first place. Think of how great that first season was, and to now get told a tale from a different perspective I think is really, really interesting, and I like that that's what this first issue is going to do, or at least that's what this first arc is being set up as. Now, that's, to me, this really could have been billed as a zero issue, this issue specifically, because you know we kind of know that there's much more to come from the moment that the first issue ends on into however long this first arc is going to be. We already know where this is going. And there's some familiar beats there. We get to see some familiar faces, but it's mostly about, to me at least, it was about Will and where he's at in the very beginning of this journey. And especially the very, very beginning, there was something that happens. And again, I'm not going to spoil this issue for you. There was something that happens that was very, very interesting to me that Will does kind of right when he gets in there. And after what he'd just been through, it was kind of shocking that he was able to do that. I know that it seems weird the way I'm saying this, but when you're when you read it, it's almost like how do you process what he does in the very very beginning? And it's something very simple, very normal. I'm not saying it's anything out of the ordinary at all. It was just like if it was me in that situation, I don't know how I'd be able to do that. But everybody processes things that are happening to them differently, and I think that that's one of the things that gets pointed out very subtly in the beginning of this story. So I like that that was the angle that was taken there. And I think that Jody Hauser does a very good job of capturing all of the characters that are used in this issue. Very, very well, very much staying true to the show. So I'm looking forward to more of that as we unravel more of the larger bits of the story. I also think having a penciler and an inker in this story seemed really, really important. I think it really, really helped set the tone between the two worlds. The colors were obviously, I mean, for obvious reasons, extremely important and I think all the three things together really really meshed well and made this feel like a really great Stranger Things story and there was this just that feel of the constant fog it was very very noticeable and I love that and it helped you know in the processing of everything that's going on for Will I actually think that the art really lent itself to that and it was a great companion to the story so I wasn't disappointed by this at all didn't think I would be especially with the team that's involved here. This is definitely a pull for me, even if just because I'm a, I'm still a big Stranger Things fan. So I was looking forward to this anyway. And I really want to see how much more this unravels as we go forward and how much more we're going to find out about just what happened to Will while he was in there and getting some details. I can't wait for the rest. We couldn't possibly go in a more different direction with the second book that I'm going to talk about this week. 
Let's have a little bit of fun with Bully Wars, number one from Image Comics and the great Scotty Young. Aaron Conley actually doing the arts, a little bit different for Scotty. Jean-Francois Bellieu does the colors. Sorry, sorry, Jean, if I butchered that name. And again, Nate Picas from Blambot doing the letters. Now, this follows a group of, I'm going to call them nerds, and you know I mean that as a term of endearment. Let's say stereotypical nerds, then. Named Spencer, Ernie, and Edith. By the way, Ernie and Edith are twins. Not sure if that's important to the story yet. Maybe we'll find out at some point a little bit later on. Now, they're starting their first day of high school, and if you remember your first day of high school, you either remember it fondly or remember it as the first day of a long four years of your life. I was in the latter category for sure. Now, Obviously, the goal is not to get bullied on your first day, right? But then here comes the big, bad Rufus Roughhouse, which, Scotty, I love the names that you picked for this book right off the bat. That's the only name I'm going to spoil as far as a very unique name right off the jump because the rest of them, I think, and the way these characters play out, I just love. Now, he's been bullying this group of kids Almost since the beginning of time. I mean, I think it was mentioned back to kindergarten. I think it said somewhere in this first issue now where the story takes an interesting turn. And this is where I'm going to almost have to slam on the brakes of this review because I don't want to spoil what's going forward. Is which character gets focused on and where that takes the story. Because I honestly, even though the title of the book is what it was, and I'm really going to tiptoe around this, I didn't expect this is where the focus would go for some reason. Now... I really don't want to spoil it. I was just really, really surprised. And I hope you kind of feel the same way. And it was a refreshing kind of surprise. It's like, okay, so this is where we're going. And while it made sense, given who they were and how they were coming into high school, it very, very much felt like a breath of fresh air at the same time. It felt like it was, this book really felt like it was the beginning of a great 80s movie to me. Except the story was very different from what you probably would have seen in that decade. And the art, I mean, it's just its just so much fun. There's so much great details all over the place. Your eyes drawn to so many different things and so many different over-the-top elements at times that happen, especially one scene in the very beginning with Rufus Roughhouse and, and, the, and the group of three there at the bus stop. I, I just laughed out loud, and the detail was so over-the-top funny it's just, it, this is one of the reasons I love books from Scotty Young. And then you bring in Aaron Conley to do the art for this. And it almost felt like I was looking at Scotty Young's art as well. It's like, it's like it didn't miss a beat. There were differences, of course. But it, it just, it all felt like Scotty Young to me. And if you've read my reviews in the past or if you listen to my reviews, that's very much a good thing. For some reason, I felt like I thought of Garbage Pail Kids a lot. When I was reading this book and as I was seeing some of this art, that is a badge of honor, by the way. I was a big Garbage Pail Kids fan when I was younger. I actually stumbled across a few cards that made it from my move. When I moved from New Hampshire to Virginia, I actually stumbled across a few things in an old, old box. So I did still have a few cards. A nice trip down memory lane. And that's what this book felt like to me. It was just fun. And the story was definitely legit. And there's some very interesting elements to this. And maybe some characters that you wouldn't think sort of teaming up together are going to be. I am in for this fun ride all the way. Bully Wars number one. Definitely a pull for me from Image Comics. And I was really expecting this to be great. I was, again, for the second time this week, not disappointed at all. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Speaking of disappointment, will I be disappointed 
in season two of Marvel's Iron Fist on Netflix. I know it's out now, but since I got to see the first six episodes early, I'm going to give you a spoiler-free review of Marvel's Iron Fist, just in case you haven't gotten a chance to start it yet. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Simone Missick from Marvel's Luke Cage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I think it's safe to say that things didn't exactly go well for the first season of Marvel's Iron Fist. So in season two, a chance to, I guess, sort of redeem themselves or let the story take on a different life. So let's go spoiler-free here. First six episodes is going to be my focus of Marvel's Iron Fist. I will have an updated review with more spoilers at downandnerdypodcast.com of the remaining episodes. So look for that sometime in the coming days because I do want to get through this full story. Now, basically what we are picking up here is Danny Rand, who of course is the immortal Iron Fist. He's told the thousand people at this point that he's the Iron Fist. So there's not much secret there. And he's sort of, you know, protecting the city after the event, you know, the events of the defenders are very important in this season of Marvel's Iron Fist and maybe a little bit of Luke Cage season two as well. Not so much, but just a little bit. And of course, season one, very much a part of this story. And how could it not be as well? So Danny Rand kind of put taking it upon himself to be the protector of his city. And of course, Colleen Wing is still with him, played by Jessica Henwick. Of course, Danny Rand played by Finn Jones. And she's maybe a little bit of a spoiler here, just a tiny bit, because this was referenced in a previous show. But I, I just in case you didn't see it. She's kind of taken a step back, become taking more of a humanitarian role. So taking her st- a step back from, you know, patrolling the streets and fighting the good fight, as it were. And again, I, I do have to drop a couple of minor spoilers to even talk about this, because what Danny's trying to do here is, is kind of prevent a war of the triads. You know, you've got the you've got the gangs that still remain. The hand is gone, but you've got the gangs that still remain in New York trying to shut that down and decrease the violence in the city. And that's basically one of the things that we have going on. But did you really think, and and even from the trailer, you kind of get this impression. So I really don't feel like this is a spoiler. And that is Davos. You know that the Davos issue was going to have to be dealt with eventually. If you saw the first season of Marvel's Iron Fist and how it ended, you're not just going to let that go. You knew that the Davos thing was going to come back and haunt Danny Rand eventually. What we do get to see, though, is we do get to go back and see what the battle for the fist was like and kind of what happened in Kunlun when they were younger and how that whole thing brought up. And you get to find out a lot more about Davos, which I love, and you sort of understand, not that you justify what Davos' thinking is or anything like that, but you sort of understand how he ended up being who he ends up being in this season through flashbacks. And a lot of times flashbacks are throwaways, not important at all, right? But in Mar- in Iron Fist season two, the flashbacks are so important, especially for Davos. And it really lays the groundwork for what happens in these first six episodes. And I'm sure beyond as well, but we're not going to talk about that right this second. And then the separate issue we have is the obviously uneasy family dynamic between Ward, who's played by Tom Pelfrey, and Joy, who's played by Jessica Strope. And you throw Danny in the mix there as well. After everything that happened 
with with uh, Harold Meacham and how that whole thing went down. And so obviously there's some issues there. And, you know, Ward has had his own issues that he needed to deal with. But how this kind of all unfolds and unravels throughout the season, I was very, very surprised at a couple of things specifically that, again, because we're going spoiler-free that I can't talk about when you're watching it. Maybe you kind of see part of it coming, but I don't think you're going to see the whole thing coming. And that was the beauty part about how this whole thing went down and how this whole relationship went because you you sort of see where Joy's story is going to go. And then it takes a little bit of a twist. And then there's a couple of surprising elements about Ward as well. And I almost feel like, and again, I don't feel like this is spoiling anything because I'm not being specific as to why I'm saying this. I almost feel like this season of Iron Fist is the redemption of Ward Meacham. Tom Pelfrey does such an amazing job as Ward Meacham in this particular season. Not that he wasn't good in season one, but really, really steps up his game for a lot of reasons in this season. And I just, I actually, as much as I hated Ward in season one, I think I liked him just as much as I hated him here in season two. For some reason, I just, I just felt for Ward at times. I, you know, and you you still want to you still want to grab him and shake him and say what is wrong with you at the same time. So there was so much of a rise and fall of emotions with Ward, and we get to see him open up a little bit and find out a little bit what what's going on in his head. And again, I think that was an amazing thing. And then you look at Joy, and you go, "Whoa!" And it's so, and it's so different. That was the other thing. It was so so different. What was going on with Joy and. It, a couple of things with her that really, really surprised me. And when the tension was there, the, there was legit tension. You could feel it in your bones. And that was one of the things I was worried about was that maybe the dialogue would be corny. And there, there were time, there were a couple of times where it was. I'm, I'm not going to get specific here, but there were a couple of times where you go, ah, really? That's that's where we're going with this. But I mean, so much of it, surprisingly. Was very. It felt very authentic, and it felt raw, and it felt real. And I think it was the different, the different approach that was taken with this season. I think really, really helped that. It made things feel a little bit more raw, and a little bit more real. And I think that that was one of the biggest things that was missing in the first season. And I think part of that too is Finn Jones becoming. It seems like more comfortable in the skin of Danny Rand and as the Iron Fist. And now, does Danny still have his issues? Absolutely. And I think part of that's never really going to go away. But at the same time, it just feels like Finn Jones is fitting into this character a lot more. And I think that part of that is the great performance as well by Sasha Dwan, who plays Davos. And the way that they play off of each other was just so amazing to me. And speaking of playing off of each other, we if if this season of Iron Fist doesn't convince convince you that there should be a Misty Knight, Colleen Wing, Daughters of the Dragon spinoff show, nothing will. I am not. I that was one thing I came out of this definitive, definitively thinking was that we need this show to happen. I don't care if it's on Netflix, the new Disney streaming service, wherever you want to put it. Give me that. Give me Simone Missick and Jessica Henwick together because their chemistry is amazing. And they have such a connection, not just because of what happened in, in Defenders, but just going forward. And even in Luke Cage, we get to see their 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 relationship grow a little bit. So I, I need this in my life 
Marvel, if you're listening, whoever's making these decisions, this is one decision that seems like an easy one to me. The biggest improvement between season one of Iron Fist and season two of Iron Fist was the fight choreography. Everything was much better this time around, especially Danny Rand. Things felt more crisp, more smooth. There wasn't one fight scene in these first six episodes where I went, that sucked. And there were plenty of times that that happened in the first season where things just felt so choreographed and wrong. This time around, it felt much more authentic. I'm not going to go far as far enough as to say it was perfect, but it was very, very good and a huge improvement in something that needed to happen. We saw flashes of that, not just in Defenders, but in Luke Cage Season 2 from Danny Rand, and that extends to others as well. I mean, Colleen Wings, she was always good from the very get-go. And it's like everybody else caught up with her. And I will talk about another character here in just a second. Again, one of those moments I'm going to have to spoil. But before I do that, I want to switch switch gears a bit and talk about a couple of the complaints that I have just a little bit. One of them was is that Danny Rand kind of seems to be following a similar path as a hero that Luke Cage did in Season 2 as far as his approach. And I'm not sure that we needed to carry that over into another character in this kind of Defenders type of realm. Now, the reason may be different for that, and that is addressed directly in one of the episodes. So at least they try to make sense of it. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, I understand why you're going this route, but because of what just happened in Luke Cage, I feel like that could have been told a little bit differently. So, So that's just a minor beef that I have with this. And although overall the story itself too is much better this time around. And while there there were times where it was predictable, it still felt very impactful when it mattered. There are certain things you are going to see coming, no question about it. But it's almost like they don't make any apologies for letting you know this is what's going to happen. But there are a couple of swerves in this that you probably won't see, or at least you won't see the big picture of until it actually happens. Again, something that was very much missing from season one of Marvel's Iron Fist. Now, everything that was missing from that first season, it almost seems like it's happening in this one. And you kind of get to see a lot of things come to fruition. A lot of things pay off. I will, all, I will say as well, there's a nice cliffhanger at the end of episode six, that's going to make you want to keep going. And that's, again, something that did not happen in season one of Iron Fist. And lost in all of this conversation so far that I've been having, especially with how great Davos is, is Alice Eve and her amazing portrayal of Mary slash, a little bit of a spoiler here, Mary slash Walker. Yep, Typhoid Mary. I gotta tell you, the way she flipped that switch and just went from one character to the other was absolutely stunning. And again, if you looked up Typhoid Mary, you should already know kind of part of this. But, and again, minor spoiler, when she kind of, when she ha- when she goes through that personality disorder and the way the, the switch is flipped and how they explain the little details of it, And while they don't go in depth, it's not a medical journal, but they make you understand 
who she is, what she's going through. And, and man, when she was a badass, she was a bad ass. There is a fight between her and Danny in this that is maybe the best fight of the season so far. No disrespect at all to the, to those fights between Davos and Danny Rand. But man, when she throws down, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near Alice Eve when she's throwing down as Ty Ford Mary. That, that, that's all I'm saying right now. But then you also have the, the other side of things where, again, Ward has a very impactful story of his own. So does Joy. And very impressed by both of their efforts and how they've evolved their characters. And that's the, that's the biggest thing I could say about this season, I think, is evolution. This story evolved maybe more than any other Marvel Netflix show so far from season one to season two, but it kind of had to, didn't it? Because if it didn't, then you're done with Iron Fist. It would be over at that point because there'd be no reason to continue it. If this season was a failure, there'd be no reason to go on. And it was a gamble bringing in an entirely new creative team. You weren't going to bring back who you had, but it was a gamble bringing on the creative team that they did and a gamble that definitely paid off. So I can't remember what I gave for a rating for Marvel's Iron Fist Season 1. Probably wasn't much higher than a 4. I'm going to go ahead and give this... Man, I can't believe I'm going this high. 8 brand new tattoos out of 10. That's just for the first 6 episodes spoiler-free. Once That might be updated... Again, go to downandnerdypodcast.com, look for my updated review of the full season of Marvel's Iron Fist. Going to focus a lot on episodes 7 through 10 there. Remember, only 10 episodes, and that's another smart move they're doing. They're not stretching this to 13, because I can already tell through 6 episodes that they wouldn't need that many. This is a story that they can wrap up in 10 episodes, so don't waste any time on just keeping this a tight story very, very well done. And if there was a most improved player award, you know, like to have that in sports for shows, I think Marvel's Iron Fist would get it. So bravo to the Marvel team writing the ship on this one on Netflix. Bravo to everyone involved in Marvel's Iron Fist season two. And I'm so happy that I'm able to say that. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Tainment and my spoiler-free review of the first six episodes of Marvel's Iron Fist. Up next, we'll take care of some nerd news on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. During Women's History Month, come explore what feminism means to you with nonfiction storytelling podcast, Thread the Needle. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. This is artist Nico Walter, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to head back to the 90s because it's time for nerd news. And yep, Entertainment Weekly finally provided us with a official First look at Captain Marvel, the movie that's going to be coming out. And yes, it will be set in the 90s. That is one of the exciting things. Now, you know that this is the first female-led MCU movie, so there's plenty of excitement there. We're going to have Captain Marvel herself, who is an Air Force pilot. She also has alien powers for anybody that's not familiar with the character. Now, you look at the suit and really isn't much different than what we saw in a leaked photo not too long ago. And, and I mean, how different... Could it have really been, you know, it just kind of sucks that that sort of thing gets out there, but obviously looks very, very legit. We're not seeing the trademark mohawk that you might see in other Captain Marvel books. I'm okay with the look. I think Brie Larson 
looks great. And that's kind of a classic look of Captain Marvel that I'm used to anyway. So I'm very, I'm more than cool with that. We do get to see some members of Star Force. Some, there were some other, the, uh, other pictures that were released as well. We got a really good look at the scrolls too. It's some pretty good practical effects on there. And, and I love that they did that. I mean, it would have been easy to go CG with something like that, right? But, you know, Marvel doesn't always do CG when it's when there's a way to do practic practical effects. They've done it very, very well, and the Skrulls are definitely no different there. Now, remember, though, they're shapeshifters, so you've got Ben Mendelsohn, who's going to be playing one of the characters, going to be pulling double duty as well. So we will see him both in the makeup as one of the Skrulls and in human form, too. Now, here's the one thing that trips me up just a little bit, though, and maybe this is me nitpicking just a bit. But I can't help it. Ronan the Accuser is going to be a part of this movie. And I'm, I'm actually okay with that. You know, the Kree are a big part of this movie as well. So he's back. But here's my problem with that. I know we're kind of going back in time here. But at the same time, you kind of know what Ronan's fate is at this point, right? So there's no real surprises. And, you know, I, I don't know how big of a part he's going to play in this story anyway. But you kind of already know what his fate is. So any sort of battle to me isn't going to have a whole lot of impact because, you know, maybe he gets defeated, but you know he's not going to be gone. So, I, I don't know. Maybe that lessens it a little bit, although he, the character was so good in Guardians of the Galaxy that, I mean, I have no problem bringing him back. Just if he becomes a major part of the story, it's going to lessen it a little bit for me, but not a whole lot. Now, the movie will also explore Captain Marvel's days as a pilot in the Air Force that also appears that you will already have her powers from the get-go. So to me, it's like, okay, so it's an origin story, but they keep saying it's not an origin story, and it's a we it's weird to see Nick Fury without his eye patch. That's a whole other side thing there. But so I mean it's uh, the one thing I worry about with Captain Marvel is is this movie gonna tug back and forth of it's an origin story. No, it's not. She's already got her powers. But we need to let know people know who she is. Well, we're still going to move forward with the story anyway. I just hope we don't have that back and forth of this movie not really knowing what it wants to be. I mean, give her her powers. Let her go. I don't, I don't think we really need to explain a whole lot here. Just let her go and, and be awesome. I think that's all. It's I really that simple to me. Just let this movie happen. Let it progress the way it's supposed to progress. So she already has her powers. So what? It doesn't matter. And you don't need to explain, you know, where was she during the, you know, the invasion of New York? Where was she when Thanos came to town? Doesn't matter at this point. Okay, let, let's not even open that door. Let's just give her this initial movie and let it be it's it let it be the thing that introduces her into the MCU, but doesn't need to tell the entire origin story of what's going on. I just I hope it's more fluid than a whole jump back and forth thing. So that's that's a minor concern that I have. But you know, I'm stoked for this. Either way, and I really hope this turns out to be a good one. Speaking of movies, it looks like Mattel is finally deciding to get things together because Mattel has announced their own movie universe, then their their own studio, actually, Mar Mattel Films, that's going to be put together according to Deadline. Robbie Brenner of Dallas Buyers Club fame will be the head producer on the project. She's an Oscar nominee, so very, very legit. Now, there are no specific projects that were mentioned for this, but you have to keep in mind now, we've heard about a Masters of the Universe movie that's been in the works for a while now, but maybe it's been in the works for a while because they decided, you know, maybe we should just make a whole studio out of, the, out of this thing 
and be done with it. So maybe that's why the brakes were kind of put on here to get somebody like Robbie Brenner in, get some fresh eyes on a project like this. And by no means do I want to see this rushed either. Yes, I want to see a Masters of the Universe movie, but I don't want to see it rushed. So maybe you get an Oscar nominee in here to take a look at what you've got and decide where this project needs to go moving forward. So I guess you could say Masters of the Universe is their first really announced project, but nothing announced since, of course, the formation of this new film studio. You know they also have Hot Wheels, they've got Barbie, Thundercats, there's plenty of other great properties that they can draw from, but I mean, those alone, to me, could be huge, and especially Hot Wheels. As popular as Fast and the Furious has been for so many years for, I don't want to say no apparent reason whatsoever, but just because of the way that these movies have become, it's almost like they could do anything and it wouldn't matter. It's going to make hundreds of millions of dollars and has a ton of fans, but it has to end sometime and somebody has to put a fresh perspective in it. So you've got something like Hot Wheels, which on its face looks like a benign property. And then you think about the possibilities for it and you go, man, there's a lot you could really do for a Hot Wheels movie. And Thundercats to me almost goes without saying how amazing that could be. I know that there's several TV projects in the works for Mattel, and they've got animated movies and stuff that they've done before. But, I mean, think about it. This is something that they've got to sit back and watch Hasbro do since 2009. And you could argue that Hasbro hasn't had a huge amount of success with their film studios. As a matter of fact, you've got the AllSpark Pictures thing that's happening now, so they've almost rebranded what they're going to be doing movie-wise. So they've decided to move in a different direction. They've made some money off of their movie studio, sure, but critically... It's debatable how successful that they've really been, and that's why Hasbro's almost going back to the drawing board here. So now Mattel's gotten to sit back. And so, okay, here's what they did right. Here's what they did wrong. Here's what we're going to do. So I don't mind them laying in the weeds a little bit, and they've certainly got plenty of legit properties to be doing something with. So I'm certainly excited for Masters of the Universe. You know if you've listened to the show that I'm a big Masters of the Universe fan. It doesn't even matter to me which movie comes first, or what order they're in, or what properties they decide to use. I just think it's a waste if you don't do a Thundercats movie right away. That is one that I would push right to the front because, I mean, just at San Diego Comic-Con this year as I'm walking the floor, there's a lot of Thundercats fandom and, you know, people talking about that new animated series that's going to be coming out wigging out because it doesn't look like what they're familiar with. There's a lot of opinions about the Thundercats universe. It's not a dormant property. This is something that if you put it out, fans would be jacked for. So, I mean, just, you know, a little something to consider. Speaking of things that fans are jacked for and an announcement that we've been waiting for for a while, we finally know when the brand new season of Doctor Who with Jodie Whittaker is going to premiere. And it's a bummer for a couple of different shows, and I'll tell you why. October the 7th is the date. Yes, that is a Sunday. That's right. They're moving Doctor Who to Sundays. And that is a huge blow to Supergirl and Charmed on the CW. Going to have that power female powerhouse Sunday lineup, right? And then you put the first female Doctor right in the same time slot. And that is just going to blow things to shreds, if you ask me. I know that both have their own audiences, and yes, there's going to be DVRs factored in and stuff like that, but you still, networks still rely so much on that live viewership. So just when you thought Supergirl was good and, you know, we're going to get charmed off the ground 
And then Doctor Who jumps in the spot and you're going, okay, now somebody's definitely getting screwed in this deal because you know that not just diehard Doctor Who fans, but there are going to be fans sampling this show just because of the female Doctor. And if this show, the first one, is any good at all, they are going to be able to hold on to that audience along with the core audience that they already have. And then we've got the comics news that came out not too long ago. you got Jodie Hauser. I again, talked about Stranger Things earlier in the show. Going to be writing the Doctor Who comics for Titan. So the 13th Doctor comic is going to be coming out in the fall. No specific release date, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's timed somewhere around this date. If you haven't seen the cover yet by Babs Tar for issue one, that's my favorite cover so far. Rachel Stott is going to be doing the interior art too, by the way. So, I mean, we've got an all-female creative team, which is great. Rachel Stott's been on Doctor Who books before, so we do have a veteran in the group. There's even going to be a Doctor Who Comics Day on November the 24th. So it's just so much excitement built around this female Doctor, and rightfully so. Now, here's the thing, though. This time around, it looks like the comics may actually be a good companion to the show, or at least somewhat, because Jodie Hauser said something very interesting in an interview where she said that the book will explore, quote, what makes our new Doctor tick? So it looks like we're going to get a little bit of an inside look into what this new Doctor is all about and what's going on with her. So it might actually dig a little deeper to where the show might not be able to do that as much, dig a little deeper into who she is and might be really important to read this series to go along with the show. I mean, I'm sure they're going to explain a little bit of her origin and we'll find out who she is in the show as well. But if you want to dig deeper, I think these Titan comics are, are going to do that. So, I mean, I, I've never been more excited for a season of Doctor Who. I can't wait for the show to get a fresh perspective and feel new again. I think that this is going to be a real winner. You know those stories where actors say, you know, I such and such would really love to play such and such role. And it, you kind of roll your eyes and say, yeah, I'm sure you would because it's money. And of course, why wouldn't you want to play that? Very rarely do these things actually come to pass, but this one did because Henry Cavill is going to be playing the lead role in the Witcher series on Netflix. He actually talked about wanting to play Geralt of Rivia, and now it is actually going to happen. So it's almost like breaking the mold there. Now, Lauren Schmidt Hisrich is going to be the executive producer and showrunner. We already know that. So... The team is already in place. Not much casting news beyond this, but this was the big shoe that needed to be dropped. That needed to drop for this show. Now, Cavill hasn't actually been on TV since the Tudors in 2010, so it's been a while. But you know, he's been busy playing. You know, the Man of Steel, Superman himself. I'll get back to that in here in just a second. If you're not familiar with The Witcher, the basic gist of it is is that Geralt is kind of a solitary monster hunter. He finds out, you know, monsters are bad, people can be worse sort of thing, trying to find his place where he fits in in the world. So then he comes across a sorceress. You also have a princess, and sometimes princesses aren't all that they might seem. So that's kind of where the story really goes from there. I'm not going to spoil a whole lot if, you, if you're not familiar with, with the lore because, you know, you want to see it for the first time. You don't want things spoiled for you. I get that. So I'm not going to do that. To me, though, of course, you know, this was short stories, and then we had novels, and then there's video games, tabletop games. Pretty much everything you could do for a story has already been done. So it's funny that the TV show seems to come last in this. And if you're going strictly on a video game adaptation, even though there are novels as well, so it's not really a straight video game adaptation. 
This is really the way you want to do it, isn't it? Because Netflix now has the opportunity to play the long game here. And if you're thinking about video game adaptations and hours of gameplay, you really have time to get to the end of the story faster because you don't have to factor in the time of gameplay and you can focus on the story itself, which, which again, I think lends itself to a better video game adaptation. And to me, if you have to adapt a video game into anything, I've always been a proponent of the whole TV thing. The rumors about the Hitman game becoming a TV series, I think it would be great. Agent 47 on TV makes way more sense to me than Agent 47 on the big screen. But getting back to The Witcher here, I really think that this is a role that Henry Cavill is very, very suited for. I think it really fits his personality type and his acting ability. And it's going to play perfectly on TV. And Netflix certainly isn't shy about throwing their money around either. So I'm sure the monsters are going to look really, really good. But think about this. What does this do now for his role as Superman? When are we going to be seeing Superman again? Now, you know, actor wouldn't be the first time an actor's worked around a TV schedule and a movie schedule. But, you know, movie always trumps TV, it seems like, especially with big projects like this. So uh, does that mean we won't be seeing Superman again for a while? When is this going to be filming or will filming be wrapped on this before we'll see Superman again? Because it seems like Warner Brothers definitely has plenty of irons in the fire that they need to focus on. And maybe Henry Cavill will be obviously be able to stay in shape for his role as Superman while he's playing Geralt. So I don't think that's that big of a deal. But you know what this also does is to me, I think it takes him out of the running. For James Bond, right? There, there's been talk about the new director for James Bond this week, and Henry Cavill threw his name in the ring and said, yeah, I could play James Bond. Why not? We already know that it's not going to be Idris Elba, but I think this means it's not going to be Henry Cavill either. And I think it's better off because I don't think he was really suited to play James Bond anyway. I talked about that in an article at downandnerdypodcast.com. I think this suits him better. I think this will be a little bit more successful of a project for him. I mean, who wouldn't want to play James Bond? I understand but to me, this just works out better in the long run. And this is one that I've been looking forward to coming out for a while. So hopefully the cast comes together quickly and they can start production on The Witcher because I think this could really be a beautiful series. And I mean, could be competing for viewership with Amazon Studios Lord of the Rings series at some point. So maybe this will be a good head to head. I know the stories aren't super similar, but it's a similar kind of lore and a similar kind of genre. So it'd be nice to see those two stacked up against each other a little bit. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, it's time for the bell to ring and find out which deadly art we're going to focus on. We're going to be talking about Deadly Class from Sci-Fi. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Patrick Fischler from Happy on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. School is now in session, and we are headed to a school of assassins. That's right, going to King's Dominion, talking about Deadly Class. I was in the press room this year at San Diego Comic-Con 2018, talking to the cast and the creators and the writers. So let's start out with Lana Condor, who plays Saya. We have Luke Tenney, who plays Willie, and Maria Gabriela de Faria, who plays Maria. Now, the first question that was asked was, how close will this show be to the comics? Well, Rick Remender is our head writer. He is producing, and he's also the showrunner. So, come on. Yeah, that tells you about how close we're staying to the story. Yeah. Yeah, and at the same time, he wants to give people something that they might not have gotten from the comics. Because this is a different medium. Yeah. So, we're being true to the comics, but being true to his vision if he had a different medium. 
It doesn't. Yeah. Next up, I wanted to ask the group, will every character actually get a chance to tell their own origin story? Your characters each kind of have really intense kind of origin stories. And how much yes. are we going to get to explore that from each of you? Is everybody going to kind of get their chance to tell their story? That's the goal. That's yes. the goal. We, we, we haven't gotten the, the rest of the script yeah. yet. But that's what, what Rick really wants to do. He wants to really unpack all of these yeah, characters. Yeah. Um, now that we have a TV show, we have more time, we have um, more things to do, so that's that's the plan, definitely. And we are digging into our characters yeah. so much that we, I so look forward to tell Maria's backstory. Oh my yeah. God, that's so yeah, unbelievable. And heartbreaking yeah. and empowering at the same time. I'm looking forward to that, yeah. for sure. In case you're not familiar with Deadly Class, Willie's backstory is really intense, so Luke kind of expands on his character a little bit more here. Willie's reputation is something that's extremely important to him, and he really takes advantage of his reputation and his innate desires to uh, avoid confrontation. But, you know, at the root, it's something that I think a lot of people will definitely not just connect to, but will be inspired by, you know, and... I'm just grateful to be able to bring that character to life, but that's definitely stuff that we will for sure unpack throughout the rest of the season. Yeah, there's a lot, lot Willie and I have in common, and there's a lot that we don't. And I'm, yes. I'm excited to dive in uh, and see the differences and similarities. Maria's character uses some special fans, in case you didn't know, so she talks about working with them and being a part of this character. And they're really heavy, yeah. and they're both. So, I mean, there are two of them. Yes. So I had to really rehearse the dancing for the pilot with the real fans. And my hands were bleeding at the end of the night. They're pointy. They have, how do you call that? Blades? Like razor. Yeah, blades. Razors. Like razor yes. So that was dangerous and fun. I actually brought one here, but. Like a fan. The, a fan, but Benedict took it. I am so grateful to be able to portray this role. I think she's she's a real human being, and I and I know her. I, I know that woman. I've been that woman, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm I'm really glad that I get to bring this comic to life. Yeah. My next question was for the ladies, and you know, there's a little bit of tension between the two of them in the comics, and is that something we'll find out more about this season? I'm not sure how much you guys can talk about, but I know that eventually there's some tension between your two characters. Is that something yep. that we're going to get to this For season sure. at some point? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. We're working on that. I know. You know what sucks is like we live super, super close. We're really great friends and we actually genuinely love each other. Yeah. So it's going to be an interesting experience like taking yeah. ourselves out of that. Yeah. I know. But it's gonna I be, love it. I think our friendship is going to make that even better. I agree. Because there's going to be real emotion. Yeah. Next up was Miles Ron Feldstein, who actually helped create Deadly Class for television, and Mick Bentecourt. Bentecourt is actually up as well, one of the producers. So we know this is set in the 80s, so how 80s will the show actually be, and will it come through in the music as well? Yeah, 100%. And, and, and there certainly will be needle drops, which will probably bring you back to a very specific place or probably introduce you to a band that you 
have heard of a little bit because it is so era specific, but also as an homage to people that are truly fans of that era and that music, there will be B-sides that really only true fans of that band or that era would really recognize as an homage and kind of a, a, a tip of the hat to their to their fandom. Yeah, well we dropped the, uh, the pilot. The pilot is a straight up mixtape from Rick Remender. So you guys will we'll get a little bit of everything. We go punk, we go hip hop. Uh, it's it's going to be great. Um, and as far as you know, 1987, we want to do what what Mad Men did for that time period. We want to be that specific, and we want to show you a side of 1987 that you might not get in like a Steven Spielberg movie, which we love. But we're we're exploring the other side, which is kind of the subcultures, the punk and the hip hop and the metal kids and all those kids that need their story told as well. This is not euphoric recall, <laughs> where we're repainting that era with some wonderful light. It's at, it's grounded, it's real, and it's nuanced. Mm -hmm. And when it's ugly, it's ugly, and we're going to sit in it for a little bit. Next up, someone asked the guys, did they relate to the characters on a personal level at all, and how will the viewers also then relate to the characters as well? When I first read the comic book, you know, this is probably four plus years ago, uh, what drew me to it most wasn't like the heightened world and the fact that the cliques are the Yakuza and the cartel. It was really that I felt like Marcus at that time in my life. And so there was a there was a connection and a truth and an authenticity to what Rick and Wes were creating that felt like I might not have gone to a school for assassins, but I remember how this felt. And I remember how it felt when this girl did this. And I remember how it felt when I sat on the steps by myself and no one would talk to me. And, and that universal truth, I think, is, is what makes the show special, not just, you know, the fact that they're, they're back flipping and kicking and, and doing all of that. What people are really going to connect to is the humor and the relationships and that real authentic emotion that you remember from that time. From June of my seventh grade summer to November of my freshman year, I had no parents, so I panhandled on the street and, and stole food at certain times in my life. So I relate to Marcus on a, on a fundamental level and his struggle. Um, I always had a place to go home to. I never lived on the streets, but um, it was an empty apartment. So I, uh, I relate to the, to, the, to the rebelliousness of it. I, I relate to being a loner no matter where I go and just having to survive day to day and then thawing out over time the more I'm exposed to people and opening myself up, trusting them a little more and then easing my way in. But I hung out with the skaters and the punk rockers. You can't talk about Deadly Class without talking to the creators themselves of the comics. Of course, Rick Remender, the writer, and Wes Craig, the artist, stopped by. And now Rick Remender actually goes on and describes the story for those who might not be familiar with it and why they might be interested. It's it's a soup in that there's there's something there is there there are a number of things for me personally. It's doing a Mad Men style snapshot for Generation X's underground and the the youth culture and the music that informed me and that I grew up with and that that mattered to me and that has been culturally marginalized to the point of almost being disappeared. Um, and so being able to to take a look at what the 80s were actually like for for a lot of us as opposed to. Uh, 
maybe something that seems a little more polished and, and, and false. Uh, that's the thing that gets me the most excited about it as well as taking just a good hard uh, look at teenage life and trying to capture the authenticity of what those emotions are and to not polish them up. One of the hardest things in writing the book is I take a lot of my old journals and I'll translate them into Marcus's journals and I want so much for the adult writer to clean it up, clean it up. <laughs> and to not make it as, as, as uncomfortable but I don't let myself and I think that uh, we've had a lot of people come up to us over the years uh, that, that, that are you know late teens who identify with it and I think it's because of that that, that honesty that, that we ensure to, to you know continue to put in there. One of the questions I wanted to ask while the guys were sitting down was what do you decide to change a little bit for TV from the comics to score, sort of make it fresh a little bit. Here's what they had to say. I think it was the first teaser where you talk about how true of an adaptation this really is, but at the same time when you're going to TV, what do you decide to kind of change a little bit for TV or make it fresh? For people that are from Well, I wouldn't say it's about making it fresh. I think it's about more the realities of hiring someone like Benedict Wong for Master Lin. Now, when we conceived Master Lin in the book, the idea is that he's sort of an enigmatic mystery figure off in the distance and that you see him almost never and that it, and when you do see him it's like dun 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 and then you uh, you know you, you cast someone like Benedict Wong who could literally read the phone book and you'd be very glad to listen to it and um, you want to unpack that character while still maintaining the enigmatic mystery and so the challenge has been in the writer's room is I keep directing everybody to let's figure out the story and then let's gut parts of Lynn's story so that we never understand exactly what's going on for a few seasons. And to do that in a satisfying way, it's almost Lynchian. Like, what's going on in the Black Lodge? I don't know, but I love it. I don't know, but I want to live in the Black Lodge. I don't want to live in the Black Lodge. No, it's bad. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, and, or when you are. But so, that is, the real challenges come in in unpacking aspects. There's all these, we built a huge cast in the book. And the amount of real estate and time we have to unpack each one of those characters in the book is limited because you have a core cast and then you've got your supporting. With the TV show, we've got an hour-long episode, so we're taking the chunks of the book and, and practicing what Joe Russo likes to refer to as muscular restraint, so that it's not a, it's not a, it's not ADD theater. We're not trying to like rocket through story. Right. We're taking a breath. And uh, one of the biggest influences for us in the book is Richard Linkletter's Slackers. And to just sit with characters and just hear their ideology and just live with them. And so, in order, the joy is being able to open it up and do that with all the characters. To do that with Lex, to do that with Petra, to do that with Brandy, to just get into all of those characters as well as the core cast. I think for me that's the part that, that has been the most fun. I, 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 I was saying earlier, sort of the untold tales of Deadly Class. You know? And that's what I was hoping for, right? Yeah. 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 That kind of serves both, both interests, you know what I mean? You don't have to, you can kind of give the comic book fans just a wider, more to think about without necessarily changing stuff that they love in the comic. And yeah, that's, that seems like a, a great approach. Yeah. So great to get a chance to chat with Benedict Wong, who plays Master Lin on Deadly Class. Also Benjamin Wadsworth, who is Marcus. The first question that was asked, and it was kind of Benedict really talking about working with the younger members of this cast and really how talented they are. For me, it's great hanging out with these guys. I mean, now being the honorary veteran. Yeah. It's like, 
the fuck can I be the veteran now? It's like, and they're so sort of sickeningly talented. And um, yeah, I just, when we did the pilot, I just thought oh, they've got great, such great work ethic. They're, they're really, really dedicated and put in so much hard work there. And um, yeah, they've they've done very well to snag them early as they're gonna blow up and. You know, we're all raring to go now in August, and uh, yeah, yeah, we, we can't wait for people to see the trailers, see, the, see um, I don't know what we're showing, like 12 minutes of the... In case you're not familiar with Deadly Class, Marcus really has a tragic backstory. He's been through a lot, so how much of that will we see play out in the series? Yeah, I would say, I would say, um, to expect the stars. Um, he's very confused by all of this. I don't think he really believes it at first, but then whenever he sees it, it's scary for him. So I have to admit, personally, as I go through the list of all the comic book TV series that are going to be coming out, Deadly Class has always stood out to me as one of those shows that could really break out and be so interesting and so great and just hit so many of those bases that you want to hit as a successful show because the comics is just so interesting it's got so many layers and levels to it and so many different characters that I think people will attach themselves to. I think Deadly Class, if the shackles are off, just like Sci-Fi did with Happy, could be maybe Sci-Fi's best show. And that is no hyperbole. I really, really do believe that. So I can't wait to check out Deadly Class. Of course, don't have a hard release date for that yet when it's going to premiere. Keep checking back down at nerdypodcast.com. We'll keep you updated on that. As a matter of fact, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Thanks to Sci-Fi for letting me be a part of the Deadly Class press room this year. You want to find out more about what's going on with our show and how you can stay up to date? Of course, downandnerdypodcast.com. But follow us on social media as well, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram, and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused, and you have no idea where this came from? No, she was sent here anonymously. Uh Uh-uh, not she... They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often?